when you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavey, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode, we'll be talking about the first two tracks of the music of Earth, as well as the first four photos from the picture archive. So let's begin. Track number one is Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number Two in F, the first movement, uh, composed in 1718 by Johann Sebastian Bach. For you Bach aficionados, it's BWV 1047. And the recording is by the Munich Bach Orchestra, Carl Richter Conductor, and it runs four minutes and 40 seconds. So, I love Bach. This is an important piece of information to confess at this moment, because there's three pieces of Bach on this, and it's sort of a... I mean, this is a beautiful piece of music, and I am glad that it's the first one that the aliens will be exposed to. I agree. Well, so, so that that's that's a good question to uh, go into. Is it a good first choice? Is it a good f- track number one? Well, so I've been thinking a lot about what is the point of this music. You last time said that the point of a mixtape is to get the other, the recipient of the mixtape, to like you. That's a well-known fact. That's why you make a mixtape. But these folks weren't exactly claiming that they were well they were claiming to represent earth they weren't just claiming to make a mixtape they were they were trying to create an archive of what the cultures of earth produced as art in the terms of music okay so i know i'm not the only bach fan fan around uh i when i was thinking about it i was thinking three bach pieces like so you got an orchestral suite and uh, an organ work and a cantata and, uh, well, you'd have to... Wait a minute. You can't have only three. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's... that you, you. I think part of what's so amazing about Bach, part of the reason why Bach's music is one of the most astounding artistic outputs of humanity... Did I mention I'm a Bach fan? Because I'm a Bach fan. <laughs> She's a Bach fan. <laughs> do I, you, you like Bach? I do. I oh, do. I oh, like the okay. music of Bach. It's true. So... But part of the reason why I think that his music is significant is that there's so much of it. It's He made contributions in so many different ways, and he influenced a lot of Western music that came after, Western classical tradition that came after him. So I think that part of why Bach matters is the context that Bach is in. So it's it's a it's a beginning for a lot of other music. It's a source. No. It's important because of everything else that goes on around it and everything that it is. What do you mean by goes on around it? Within the music or within the culture? That within it was? the culture. And the, the you know the stuff that came before and the stuff that came after. The fact that he was borrowing from Lutheran hymn tunes for example or the fact that uh, other people, Gounod wrote uh, 
Ave Maria to go above his work. I mean, it, it, the he Bach's music continues to be a standard against which other music is measured, even though the other music is is not of the same time or place. Was was Bach first or close to first in terms of taking? Uh, choral or what would be called religious music and making secular music from it? No, and that's not what he did. I mean, he took religious music and he made religious music with it. Okay. And other people had done that too. But not everything, like, I know he wrote a lot of music for his local church yep. at some period in his life, but he also wrote under the patronage of... Excellent point. So would the music that he was writing under patronage, and I have in my notes here that this was written for Prince Leopold. Exactly. But would this still be considered religious music? No, the orchestral tweets are, are they, they fit anywhere. Okay, that's what I would have thought. They say in Murmurs of Earth that this, one of the reasons they chose this as the first track was to, quote, begin on a note of energetic optimism. Hmm, I like that. Do you think... It qualifies as that. I think that song makes me happy, so it, I, yeah, I would say so. It, I like that piece. It touches the heart in ways that produces happiness. Touches my heart. <laughs> it's certainly upbeat. And that wouldn't be considered aggressive. <laughs> well. This wouldn't be considered a battle cry from the people of Earth towards the OSPs. Uh, excellent point, but since I have no idea what the OSPs are listening for, uh, you know, if we think about bird song, usually uh, birds are singing, making music to say, hey, sexy, hey, I'm sexy, you're sexy, let's be sexy. So, you know, maybe we're sending a different message to the OSPs, or maybe it's uh, like there are, you know, maybe it's the terrible growl of a lion. We have no way of knowing. That's a fair point. And yeah, we, we may have reversed our points from the previous episode from the previous where episode, yeah. uh, I was uh, being, you can't second guess all these things. But, you know. I think you should second guess all the Bach that you chose because. <laughs> Wait, I, I, should, I should second? No, the, the makers of this album. So you don't, you don't, you, you approve of three Bach selections, but maybe not these? Well, I, I'm still trying, I'm still grappling with what the point of the music is. If it's to make a snapshot, I think three Bach pieces is not like if you if you took a photograph or if you if you grabbed a subway train from each of the major metropolises that have subway trains and caught what was on everybody's uh, headphones, I don't think that thirty percent of it would be Bach. So uh, I don't think it's a fair snapshot. Right. It's also hard to quantify or qualify what even the snapshot is. It's it's obviously not a snapshot chronologically. It's not a it's not a record of what music was on Earth in 1977, because there are selections exactly. from the centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so other things I have about this uh, selection of music: uh, Bach was 36 when he wrote it uh, or composed it. Um, and apparently it is famous for the trumpet part, and the trumpet part being very hard to play, hmm. especially in 1718 when trumpets didn't have valves. Wow. Uh, music historians took this as a means by which to look into uh, instrument construction development. and development of the time. There is apparently evidence in Bach's original uh, manuscript 
uh, of the piece where he changed some uh, elements in the trumpet part to make it easier to play. Apparently, in the first draft, it was practically impossible. And the valveless trumpet they were using at the time was called a clarino. (laughs) A clarino. A clarino. So, again, (laughs) just me, but it would be fun had they sent off a picture of one of Bach's original manuscripts, which are, again, Bach fan here. They're beautiful. He put little squirrely curlicues on them and... He, he had nice handwriting. Well, the, There is a picture of some sheet music. There is a picture of some sheet music with a violin, I think, in yeah. the picture. As we will discuss later today, I hope. Uh, they were already asking the, in the recipients of the record to uh, do quite a lot of decoding. So perhaps that would have been a bridge too far, asking them to figure out musical notation but what if they're going to f- try to figure it out anyway, but they can't place it to a thing, yeah. to a sound? So we're just I'd making it more difficult. Yeah, I'd be frustrated and attack the earth. Yeah, undoubtedly. So Bach is lovely. Let's let's uh, okay. So, so let's all enjoy. I think it's a great place to start. I think it's actually a good place to start too. And uh, that's all I have to say about this first piece. And so if no one else has anything to say, we'll move on to the next section. Uh, So we're now going to dive into the picture archive on the Golden Record. Um, The first picture, uh, if you go to the NASA website, you can actually see a lot of these photos on their Voyager Golden Record page. The very first photo, photo number one, copyright John Lomberg, Uh, is of a perfect black circle on a white background. The calibration circle. Yeah, this this photo was basically put in so that the OSPs, when they were decoding this information and turning it into pictures, would have a sign that they were on the right track with what they were doing. So they had to turn the images into sound using a series of vertical lines on the record. Um, So when you're transferring that sound to an image um, to make sure they were doing it right. They wanted to have something to go by. So they put in this circle um, with a drawing of the circle on the cover of the record. Um, yeah, th- this this photo of the circle is actually etched onto the golden record cover at the end of the instructions on how to turn the data from the record into photos uh, as, a, as very much a uh, you're doing this right. That's better, because if the whole point is that it's a perfect circle and then you digitize it, we all know that when you digitize things, you lose, well, the resolution is such that it's not going to be a perfect circle anymore. And uh, it's conceivable that an alien would find that confusing. I mean, it, it depends, sorry, uh, the recipient of the record. The OSPs. Would find that confusing just because it's, um, it's not the same. Yeah, and, and like a television signal, especially at the time, you're, you're giving horizontal lines of information, and you need that information of when the carriage return happens. And so having the circle gives them a definite reference to uh, attune their scan frequency. Very thoughtful. It was suggested by Philip Morrison of MIT that the first photo should be a geometric object for this purpose. Good job, Phil. Good job, Phil. <laughs> Um, 
And I'm going to do a thing where I rate these photos on the threat to humanity scale. <laughs> Zero is uh, we're okay. Ten is this is imminent threat. And I would say that the TTH scale for this photo is a zero. Like the circle is also a zero. Like the circle. <laughs> Big goose egg. Okay. Okay. So then we'll move on to picture number two, uh, titled The Sun and Its Place, copyright Frank Drake. It's an image of the sun and its distance from recognizable pulsars uh, with an inset of the Andromeda galaxy. I'm a little confused why the Andromeda galaxy is there. Um, maybe just to show that, hey, we live in a spiral galaxy? Well, so one of the suggestions in Murmurs of Earth is that, I mean, anyone who finds this probe is going to be in our galaxy. Exactly. So why is Andromeda there? I think it's meant to give a, we're looking at the same things you are. They also had the impression that if the OSPs had data on Andromeda, such as what it would look like, uh, over a period of time, they could use that to date when the probe was launched or when the archive was put together. But this is a pretty crummy photo of the galaxy. I'm not sure you're going to be able to discern it much from its future state with this big fuzzy blob. Uh, I agree. I also am not sure I'm on board with the second reason they gave, which was that it would help with the, quote, handiness of the photo, whether... It would give the OSPs information that they were scanning the objects correctly left, and they didn't flip them left to right, right to left. Hmm. I guess there's enough information in the background of Andromeda that they could tell that they had the... Chirality. The chirality, correct. I guess it does. So this is a, a lo the location of our sun relative to pulsars, which looking at it just looks like a whole bunch of lines all going to the same point. So I guess having the galaxy there does give it some stellar context, so you're not thinking you're trying to decode some atom or something. That's that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. So maybe, yeah, maybe I can see it. And the distances, sorry, not the distances, the frequencies of the pulsars are written in binary along each of the lines. Now, does it does the fact that this is a two-dimensional a two-dimensional representation of what must be a three-dimensional picture, would that make it more difficult to place it, to place the Earth from those pulsars? Probably. That's a good question. But when we look at this guy, we're looking at it two-dimensionally. Yes, but they're going to be looking at a different two-dimensional sky. Exactly. When we look at the sky, I, I hate to ask this of an astronomer, but we got two angles and a distance. Right, but if you're looking at a picture, you don't have the distance. Okay. Right. We, we, don't, we don't have the depth in the photo. I don't think. I don't think it's encoded in the information anywhere. So there's no meaning to the length of those lines? The length of the lines must have something to do with the distance, but I think it's important to note that um, a good half of them are cut off. Oh, you, uh, make it, you do make an excellent point. But this, actually, this image, the image of the sun with the pulsar rays is also on, etched into the cover of the golden record itself, and those rays aren't cut off. So this could even also just act as a backup to the, are you scanning the pictures correctly? Oh, yeah. Straight lines. Straight, yeah. straight lines. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And now they're, scan now they're going from a geometric representation with the rays coming out of the sun and an actual photograph mm -hmm. inside. I think thumbs up to that picture. 
So how does this one rate on, on the, the yeah, threat, threat to, to humanity, humanity scale? This it, is a, it's a full 10. This is giving away our location. This is, um, this well, is giving, g- giving away where we are. You're not going to knock a point off just because uh, they threw in the Andromeda Galaxy as a, as a, <laughs> as a decoy? As a decoy? <laughs> <laughs> we are actually from the Andromeda Galaxy. We are far more advanced than you are. We travel between galaxies. <laughs> I will knock off a point for that. That's a nine. All right. Good thing, too. <laughs> it's true. If they now spend the next couple thousand years trying to map the pulsars of the Andromeda Galaxy to find out where we are. Hats off to them. <laughs> we will move on to picture number three, which is titled Math, copyright Frank Drake. And this is their attempt to teach the OSPs our methods of representing numbers and mathematical operations. And there's a lot to say about here, I think. Yeah, this is a... So (laughs) what we have are uh, basically little dots. Uh, One dot equals... uh, And then they have an equal sign, and then the number one represented in binary, and then another equal sign, and then the one with the uh, common Earth numeral that represents one. And then they do this for two, three, four, five, six. For seven to ten... They, they include the binary, but they stopped including the dots, which I feel is a ridiculous mistake. It certainly uh, is a bewildering choice for all of it, actually. I, it, I'm, I am amazed that, that this is considered uh, sufficient information I, by smart I people. This is a mess. <laughs> There's the weirdness of the binary being written right to left when everything else, including every, I mean, everything else on the record is presented as left to right. There's never an explanation of what the equal sign is. There's yeah. an, and and they don't write binary as ones and zeros. They write binaries as upright and horizontal. So the horizontal lines and in the equal sign and the horizontal lines in the binary are not easily distinguished. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I, I I I am confused by this. I'm not entirely. I think the fractions could have used a diagram, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and then they've got the horizontal lines in the fraction, which look like the binary lines. Exactly. Too. And the binary lines. Yeah, so in the photo, there's a couple of mathematical operations. There are the uh, standard numerals of 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 8 plus 17 equals 25. And I could see that as being a, this is how we do base 10 arithmetic uh, once you figure out what the plus sign means. But I guess if they can decode what 8 and 17 are then and 25, they can probably put that together. And maybe with the fractions, the fact that there is this finding of the common denominator would help decode that what they mean by fractions. But there, I feel there's still no, there's no sense of what that uh, division is, the 1 over 3 and the 1 over 2. Yeah. I really think that if you gave this to a human being today who didn't use Roman numerals and didn't use the plus and minus signs, I don't know. If These aren't a- Roman numerals. Oh, sorry, they're not Roman. Who didn't use Arabic numerals? You'll, you'll edit it out so I don't sound stupid, right? <laughs> uh, who didn't use the Arabic numerals? We, um, I think that there are also cultures that don't use the same symbols for plus and minus and dividing and oh, I'm multiplying. Sure that, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's, yeah. So I think if you could find somebody who used different way of expressing mathematics and offered this to them and said... Write this down in your language. Uh, I think it would be hard. Just makes me think that there must be some better way for us to be using, to be expressing our math, because this is not a very efficient way to be doing it. 
is what this has made me realize. Excellent so, point. So not only does this photo you feel fail to convey uh, how we express mathematics, it is I, making you question how we as a, as a people express math yes, in I general. Yes, I need to redo it. <laughs> this is a mess. Tune in to Hannah's next podcast, <laughs> Redoing Math. <laughs> Start with number one. Yeah, but I think really, like, I think I still think the biggest sin on it is giving up on the dots after six. Like, why not just continue that to ten? Hold on, they don't even have zero on here. And they don't have the concept of zero. Well, they have ten, and they have a hundred, and they have a thousand, and that also is weird. I guess that's a good reason not to use the zeros in the binary notation. Mm. That's why they would have because to. ten looks like two. Yes, and and they they use a, a serifed one yeah. for uh, for lack of a better term for what it means when the one has the little things on it, uh, and the binary notation doesn't have those. It's just a, a so vertical it's, it's line. vertical line horizontal line, which is fine. Sure, if you know what it means. Sure, and I'm sure in 1977, whenever this was 70, 77. 77, they were very excited about uh, magnetic recording mm. possibilities. Computers. So having magnetization and non-magnetization would maybe have been in their heads when they were inventing the binary, which is just a boring point that I bring up because I am a boring person. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but that's basically all I have to say about that slide. Yeah, I like Hannah's summary. This is a mess. Yeah, yeah. we need to redo math. Yep. Okay, well, moving on to the fourth picture, uh, the last one we're going to talk about today. Uh, picture number four is titled Physical Constants, copyright Frank Drake. And this is their attempt to build upon, uh, now that we have a mutual understanding of math and numbers, <laughs> uh, can we express uh, the basic physical constants? You thought and the last one was a mess. <laughs> Just you wait. So... Their basis for starting a discussion of science is to define the wavelength of the hydrogen emission line, which is about 21 centimeters, mm -hmm. and then to build on that all of the other constants that would be useful for uh, the aliens to know about. Sorry, the OSPs. I apologize. So I think it's... So they wanted to come up with some sort of base unit that would be constant throughout the galaxy. And I think that the transition of the hydrogen atom is a decent choice for that. Um, I'm just not entirely convinced of the way they depicted that that's what they're trying to use as the unit. So as somebody who's taught quantum mechanics several times, how do you feel about that uh, pictogram of the hydrogen atom oh. in the transition? Here's the deal. When I teach quantum mechanics, I invariably start by using the thumbs up symbol and the thumbs down symbol for the the different possible spins of the electron. And I have used it for weeks before explaining what it is. And it, people just think that I am waving my hands around. Because, of course, unless you are explaining in detail, in painful, month-after-month-long detail, everything that is going on in your head... It's very difficult to understand absolutely anything from a pictorial representation. Sure, but playing devil's advocate here, there is the, the assumption that the record is being received by not by a uh, human, but by somebody who cannot. undergraduates, but yeah, uh, right. <laughs> but God. an advanced, <laughs> an advanced alien species. And we ourselves, if we ever get a tungsten record from somewhere else. We will, maybe it'll be gold, 
who knows. We will certainly look at all of the information on it as having meaning, right? We will, we, we will scrutinize the heck out of what we get. I think if history shows us anything, humans will look for meaning. Oh, yeah, yeah, where uh, there is none. Let's accept that it's extremely difficult to express these ideas uh, in pictorial form. And that the time it takes for an electron to spin or spin flip in hydrogen, you know, that's, that's that. I agree with Hannah. That's a beautiful unit. The numbers after that. The numbers after that are interesting. So they they have this series of numbers. They're they're building up a system of. They're basically building up a system of of the SI units, and they're starting with the wavelength <laughs> of that hydrogen emission. Well, they also have the mass and the time it takes. They also have the mass. Um, and the time it takes, which is, again, a constructed idea, the lifetime. Anyway, go on. I don't see in the picture where it puts together where the unit they give as the underscore T is related to the hydrogen atom. Oh, it's the time for, it's the half-life for a spin flip, is my understanding. Yep. You go from but, spin down to spin up. But but I don't... I don't you don't read it that way. That's well, I, the small line above the one T. Can't you tell? Yeah. Wait. Oh, that's a T between the two. C. Between oh. See what we're saying here? Okay. It is not clear, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay. Well, I hate it a little less now. I think there's a lot to hate about it still. So uh, the wavelength is indicated by drawing a wave. That's good. Kind of. Assuming that kind we all of. have the same. Yes. But then, because it's not the wave of a hydrogen atom is like the wave on an ocean in reality and then if you're if you don't have oceans the depiction of an ocean wave doesn't help you but anyway its length is indicated by 1l between two uh, vertical lines which we have just indicated in the previous slide means binary 1 and binary 1 so they're going to be wondering what the heck those vertical lines are meaning also, they underline all the units. So, like, second is an S, and it's underlined, which looks like the another binary line. The, the binary zero. Yeah. yeah. So and that, that could be problematic as well. Yeah. Seriously, I, I understand the desire to set aside letters as being different from numerical uh, indicators, but using the same symbols again is deeply problematic. I think I agree. I think... It would take a bit more information to have everything you need to fully decode that image. I'm not entirely sure that, I mean, we'll get into more pictures in future episodes. They will use these numbers again and again. But I don't think this information is necessary for the aliens to fully get... Um, I don't think I don't think their inability to decode this will means they can't get anything out of the future pictures. That's good. So it's it's a it's a failure of communication to some extent, but I don't think it's a catastrophic one. I don't know if it's necessarily failure to communicate or just that our physical units suck too. Our math sucks and now our physics sucks. Well, the fact that we're this still needs to be redone too, I think. Yeah. And it is being redone. I, I I'm 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 very interested in the idea that now, 40 years after this uh, record has gone out, we're coming to terms with the fact that our units are stupidly defined. And, well, it's okay. So this is a long-term project that is not just happening now. But the, the redefinition of the SI units, it's too bad that we had to send the record out before yeah. that got done. 
But again, look forward to Hannah's new podcast, Redefining uh, SI Units, coming in 2019. At least they don't have Imperial Units on there. That would... That would... Like if it was inches and miles. Yeah. Would it matter? Probably not. I mean, they're all bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They do have angstroms. And years and days, and I... I so the year is important. I, could, I, I see the point of the year. And the day, because the day identifies which planet we're on. But it, they don't point out what day and year mean. <laughs> All right. Never mind. I think when we get into the solar system calibration images, there's something but, on there that, that uh, identifies what the planet it, it, is yeah. or what a day is. What a day and a year is. Uh, that, okay. That'll probably come up. You're, you're right, Hannah. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this conversation. I didn't give the TTH scale for pictures three and four, but I would say uh, the TTH for picture three uh, is a three uh, because by giving them our nu- numerical notation, it allows them to invade covertly. Mm. Covertly? How? In, in secret. Well, they could... they could like, they know numbers? Yeah. They, they, can, could, they can hack our systems. They oh. Can, they can now apply for uh, credit cards. Oh. And the next picture number four, the physical constants, is a TTH of five because uh, it's just furthering the covert. Uh, they can now use our science against us. I kind of love the idea that uh, it's really simple for them to decode. They look at it and they're like... They use a day is, is what is this, going to be 42 one-hundredths times 10 to the 9 times 864 times the half-life of the spin flip of a hydrogen atom? Those primitives? Those, those losers? This is good. Maybe they'll see this. They'll see how trash our math and our physical mm-hmm. units are, and they'll come here and teach us their math and their physical units, and I won't have to redo it. They'll do it for me. Turns out that wait. So you're you're inviting them. To, I think into if they this, have some better systems, I might have a new TTH number for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think if they've got a better way, they should share it. All right, fair enough. Because ours is trash. Ours is trash. The Voyager Golden Record, inspiring <laughs> humanity <laughs> to do better. So now I think we're going to move on to the second track of music titled Kinds of Flowers, which is a gamelan from Java. Uh, This is recorded by Robert Brown on January 10th, 1971, in the hall of one of the royal courts in central Java, which is an island of Indonesia. It runs four minutes and 43 seconds. And as we discussed in our episode zero, Robert Brown uh, was from the Center of World Music at Berkeley and was one of the main consultants on choices for the music of Earth. Well, this is good. It's certainly, you'd be missing a lot of the classical tradition if you didn't have at least one gamelan piece. You should have two. (laughs) (laughs) One Javanese and one Balinese? Perhaps. So what I have is a gamelan is a word that just basically means orchestra a collection of instruments. In Java, at least, these would mostly be instruments made of bronze, mostly percussive, and they have a pentatonic tuning, which I don't know what that means. But you can decode it. (laughs) Uh, Five gin and tonics. (laughs) Could you explain to the listener what a pentatonic tuning is? Maybe. The physics of musical sound is that you have the air is resonating, and is resonating with a certain frequency with a certain wavelength. And if you take an integer multiple of the frequency, 
you get things that we would call harmonies uh, in the Western musical tradition. So if I take a string and I let it vibrate with a certain wavelength and then I double the wavelength, I am changing the note by one octave and many musical scales take that frequency doubling or uh, wavelength doubling, frequency having wavelength doubling to be meaningful. And since in the Western tradition we call that an octave, our scale runs through an octave. When we say that they have a pentatonic scale in the gamelan music, we say that we're saying that they have divided that octave into five okay. tones. I see. Thank you. Thank you. So the title of the track, Kind of Flowers, refers to this uh, selection being about two of the nine flowers that are symbolic in Javanese Hinduism for the nine moods. I love this. The nine moods are love, joy, wonder, peace, anger, courage, sadness, fear, and disgust. Oh. None of my research would tell me which two of those this piece is about. Ah. Well, let's hope we sent the nice ones to the aliens. (laughs) And that kinds of flowers is a type of piece called a ketawang, which I'm not claiming to have pronounced correctly, but basically it just means it's a short piece. So I think that means gamelans would tend to be longer than the four minutes, 43 seconds we're getting here. Yes. There's a lot of opportunity for exploration, an amazing amount of opportunity for exploration with uh, a pentatonic scale and a large number of instruments. And it's, I think it's a good follow-up to the Bach. This is definitely music of a different culture, I would say. It sounds different to me, but I'm, yeah. uh, you know, the, the way that we hear music is very, very culturally influenced. And so I know full well that if you played to a Javanese person some country and Western music and some uh, Brazilian folk tunes they wouldn't necessarily say oh geez those are super different because they both just sound foreign Hmm. and i think that if we played other music from um southeast asia you and i would just say oh i I think those sound foreign i'm certainly not claiming to be uh to have not claiming that my musical ear is that fine-tuned I, I don't know if if a recipient of this record far across the galaxy would hear any difference between this. And I think it's hard to know because we don't know yet still why there is music. We know that there are animals that make songs, which are calls, and there are animals, there are mammals, but mm, gibbons, I think, that sing together. But we don't have a universal idea of music. So if you think that music is melody, then, uh, which is generally speaking what I I think of music as being, it's melody and rhythm and and orchestration and all those things. But I don't think of it as being like the silences between the pieces. But there's some evidence to suggest that there are some animals even here on Earth that aren't listening to the noises. They're listening to the silences between the noises. And so if the aliens listen to the track in that way, they won't notice that the noises are from different uh, cultures. They'll notice that all the silences are exactly the same length, and they'll say, ooh, that was a boring piece. (laughs) No, that's that's, that's an excellent point. Again, with the OSP, the fact that we just don't know. Yeah. Well, and if we go by Star Trek rules, um, other planets only have monocultures anyway. Excellent point. 
Excellent point. So they might not even be thinking about um, different cultures. Just that this is another example of music of Earth. Which it is. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. This week, we would like to thank Pauline McLeod, Cape Retner 65, and Xmas Songs. They all left us reviews on iTunes. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.